Wants are unlimited, but resources always limited. So, how do you distribute your limited resources between your competing and potentially unlimited wants to achieve a fulfilling outcome for your life? That is what we figure out on The Money Spot. Welcome to The Money Spot, the place where we answer your money questions. I'm your host, Heather Katsonga Woodward, and in this week's episode, we cover investing. Investing 101. So we're going to cover how to start investing, and this will include where to put your money, how much to invest, and what to invest it in. I receive a lot of questions about how to start investing, and this month alone, I've fielded more questions than ever before. So, as a belated birthday present to myself, I decided to get this all out into a simple blog. A couple of housekeeping points first. Any tax rates and thresholds mentioned in this post will be correct as at the time of writing, but tax is something that gets tinkered with all the time. So this could get dated pretty quickly. But using figures will help you to understand how it all currently works in principle. Everything I share here is information, not advice. Once you decide to actually start investing, you would be very well advised to A, do some further research yourself, and B, to speak to a fee-only, all-of-market independent financial advisor. What does this mean? Fee-only essentially means they don't charge you a percentage of what you have to invest. They charge a fixed fee. And all-of-market means they can offer products from a range of institutions, not just their own institution. Ideally, you should only invest money that you won't need for at least five years. This is because share market prices move up and down a lot. And if you need that money before five years is up, there is more chance that you might have to sell at a loss. Investing is a long-term game. The longer the time you can wait, the higher the probability of being up. Over a 20-year period, for example, the S&P 500, which is the 500 largest listed companies in the USA, has returned a positive return 100% of the time. And while the future may turn out to be different, you are generally well advised to leave money invested for as long as possible. Then finally, while my aim is to make this discussion as simple and as unintimidating as possible, at times it will feel really complex. Not because investing is hard, but because we invest within the context of a very complicated and convoluted tax system. But you have to get to grips with our tax system, which is the UK tax system, to get ahead with investing. Anyhow, I'll divide this into four parts to keep it clear. Part one is all about what sort of investment account to put your money in. Part two 
lays out what to think about when deciding which institution to invest your money through. Part three helps you think about how much to invest over time. And part four provides pointers regarding what you should invest in. Part four is very much based on how I choose to invest. And this is the area where you may want to talk to more people about how they invest, including your independent financial advisor, so that you can start to form an idea of what will work best for you. So feel free to jump to the part that you need and which is the most relevant to you. And the timestamps for each part are in the description of this episode. Without further ado, part one. What sort of investment account should you put your money in? You can think of your investment account or investment vehicle as the house where your money is kept. There are three different types of vehicles. One, a pension, and it can be a workplace pension or a personal pension. A personal pension in the UK is sometimes known as a self-invested personal pension or SIP for short. And it allows you to invest money before it's been taxed. The second vehicle is a stocks and shares individual savings account or a stocks and shares ISA. This allows you to invest money after it's been taxed, but all dividends and all capital gains are tax free from that point. Vehicle number three is a taxable brokerage account, which means you invest money after it's been taxed and any capital gains and dividends are also taxable based on the tax rates of the day. Any business or institution that offers the services to buy or sell shares and investment funds will typically offer all three vehicles. That is, they'll usually offer pension accounts, ISA accounts, and taxable trading accounts. However, you should check before you open the account because for instance, if you're investing for kids, there are some institutions that don't offer junior ISA. But we're not covering kids here. And when it comes to adults, anywhere that's reputable will have all three. There are different pros and cons of investing in each of these three. And I will highlight the main pros and cons for each. Let's start with the first, pensions. I am only going to cover defined contribution pension schemes in this post or podcast episode, which is what most people have nowadays. I won't cover defined benefit pension schemes in which the employer commits to pay you a specific amount from a predefined retirement date until you die. The rules are much the same between the two in terms of investment limits, but if you're responsible for your own retirement income, as is the case if you have a DC scheme, you're likely to be more aggressive with building that pension pot. I'll cover the difference between DC and DB pensions in a future post. So what are the pros of investing through a pension? The current rules allow you to access pension money from the age of 55. This is good because once you invest, there is 
no temptation whatsoever to spend the money on a new kitchen, a holiday or anything else. There are, however, plans to peg this to 10 years below the state pension age. So wherever the state pension age is set, personal pensions could be accessed 10 years prior to that. We know the state pension age is moving to 68. So in a few years, you would only be able to access money that's in your SIP or your workplace pension from the age of 58 at the earliest point. The second benefit is that the money you invest is pre-tax. So tax is only calculated on the portion that remains after what's gone into your pension. If you're in the 20% tax bracket, this is all automatic. However, if you're in the 40% tax bracket, some of the tax deduction will have to be calculated when you do your self-assessment tax return, which you fill out in January, and it reduces what you owe in tax. I'll give you a simple example to make it clear. If you earn £45,000 a year at your job, and you put £5,000 in that year into a personal pension or your workplace pension, tax, income tax that is, is calculated as though you only earned £40,000, not £45,000. If you earn £60,000 a year and you put 12000 into your personal pension, tax is calculated as though you earned £48,000. That's 60 minus 12000 So you effectively take yourself out of the 40% tax bracket completely, but a portion of this tax reduction has to be claimed via your annual self-assessment return, which is filled out in January at the latest, but you can actually fill it out any time from the time the tax year closes in April all the way through to January the next year. Your pension vehicle can only claim tax back from HMRC, Our Majesty's Revenue and Customs, as though you're in the 20% tax bracket. So it is important to fill out a self-assessment tax return if you're in the 40 or 45% tax bracket and are paying into your pension. So two benefits, pre-tax income being invested and no temptation to spend it. But what are the disadvantages or cons of investing through a pension? Well, one of the benefits is also a disadvantage. You don't have access to the money until age 55. So if you genuinely needed it for something important, for example, if your dream house came up and you were willing to sacrifice pension savings for it, it just would not be available. It's worth noting that if you have a terminal illness, you can get early access to pension savings, but this is beyond the scope of this post, so I won't talk about the details on this. The second disadvantage of investing through a pension is that the money gets taxed on the way out. A tax-free lump sum can be paid up to a maximum of £250,000. This is actually a maximum of £250,000, but essentially it's 25% of the pot. Whatever that is can be taken out as a cash, a tax-free lump sum. So if what you had was 500000 the maximum you could take out 
would be 125,000. The 250 or just of over 250k max is dependent on you having a 1 million, which is roughly the maximum you are allowed to invest over your life in a pension. But we'll cover that in a moment. After that lump sum, all money is taxable as it is drawn according to prevailing income tax rates of that day. There are a few rules on how much you can invest in a pension that you need to keep top of mind. These limits on how you can spend are per year as well as over your whole lifetime. Firstly, the annual allowance is the maximum you can put into your pension each year and still get the tax benefit. This is currently £40,000 gross, i.e. before tax, or your full annual income, whichever is lower. So, if you earn 30000 a year, the maximum you can put into a pension is 30000 My sister asked me, how's that possible if you're earning 30000 Well, if you're a double income household, you might decide to save all of one income and invest or spend the other income in different ways. So, you can put 30000 into a pension. And I'm sorry that this is getting a little complicated already, but as I've said before, the UK tax system is mad. So a little detail is essential. A key thing to note is that not all income qualifies towards this pension contribution limit. Earnings from property aren't allowed. So if all your earnings are from a buy-to-let property portfolio that's in your own name, the maximum you can put into a pension is 2880 And with the government tax benefit, this is grossed up to 3600 So you'd only invest 2880 into the pension and you'd still have £3,600 before any capital growth. However, if your buy-to-let properties are in a company, then you could pay yourself a salary and you'd need to follow the rules on national insurance contributions and income taxes as well. Then whatever your salary is, up to the 40k annual allowance limit would be the maximum you could pay into a pension and still get a tax benefit. The second limit is the pension lifetime allowance, which is just over a million pounds at the moment. This may sound like a high, high limit, but it includes capital gains, not just the contributions you make. So you can actually easily breach this limit if you're on a high income. For instance, if you had £250,000 in your pension at the age of 35, then a 7% growth rate of your portfolio would mean the money doubles every 10 years. So even if you didn't invest anything else, that 250,000 would grow to a million pounds by the age of 55. Ideally, the lifetime pension allowance should grow with inflation, but it's frequently frozen and was even slashed from 1.8 million in 2012 to a million pounds in 2017. This post is not about pensions, but they're one of the primary vehicles you can invest through. So hopefully what I've said so far will help you understand whether this is the best vehicle for you. Depending on how much money you have to invest, 
I would look at putting some money in both a pension and an ISA. And if you have more besides, then you might want to put some into a taxable investment account as well. So on to ISAs. I love ISAs because once the money goes in, you don't have to think about making tax declarations anymore. It's all tax free from that point. Woohoo! The pros of investing through a stocks and share ISA. I won't cover cash ISAs here as this post is specifically about getting started with investing in stocks and shares. I see three key advantages with ISAs. Firstly, there's the tax advantage. That is all capital gains and dividends grow tax free and can also be withdrawn tax free. The second is that there is a large limit now. The annual limit is £20,000, which is huge for most people and it can allow you to take a fair amount of money out of the tax man's reach. And the third benefit is that it's easy access. If you need the money from your stocks and shares ISA, you can usually take it out whenever you want. Usually this is instant, but in some cases you may need to wait up to 30 days. A couple of disadvantages to investing in an ISA. The first is that it's post-tax investing. You invest money that's been taxed unlike with a pension where the contribution is before tax. And the early access is also a disadvantage. If you find it hard not to spend, then the fact that the funds in an ISA are easily accessible could prove to be a big problem for you. Whether you plan to invest in a SIP or in an ISA depends on your financial position and your future plans. For example, your retirement goals do you want to retire early or late? The goals you have for your children, if you have any. Do you want to pay for a private education? Do you want to give them a lump sum to buy a house at some point? Uh, will you fund university or let them take loans from the government? As tax advisor to my friends and family, I recommend different things depending on what I know about the person, including their propensity to choose spending over saving or investing. There isn't a blanket rule I can give you, and it just definitely depends on the personal circumstances you've got. The third and final vehicle is the taxable brokerage account. If you've maxed out your 20,000 ISA allowance for yourself and your partner, and you're putting as much into your pension account as you think is right to not breach the 1 million lifetime allowance too early, you would look to invest via a taxable brokerage account. If you're saving that much though, you may not want to, you may just want to spend more, have better holidays, more life experiences, and no one's gonna blame you for that. You're doing well if you can fill both your ISAs and keep your pension afloat. Part two, who, that is which institution should you invest your money through? So. In part one, you figured out whether to put your money in a pension, an ISA, or even a taxable account. You now need to decide where to open your pension, ISA, or taxable account. The way to think about this is, if you had money to save, one of the questions you'd want to answer is, which bank should I keep my money with? And that's the decision we're trying to make in part two. If you have a workplace-defined contribution pension, that decision is usually made for you, although in some cases, you're offered limited options. 
you are allowed to have a personal pension outside your workplace in addition to the work one, but I personally, I'm happy with the options provided by the pension provider that my workplace uh, invests with, so I don't contribute more to another SIP. I just focus on increasing my SIP contributions to my current provider. There are three options open to you when it comes to a type of institution. Firstly, you can invest through a brokerage firm that only offers investments from third parties. An example here would be Hargreaves Lansdowne or iWeb. They're basically platforms that allow you to invest in different fund managers' investments. They don't necessarily create, they don't create funds themselves. The second option is to invest through a financial institution or a bank that offers you the chance to invest in individual companies or investments from third parties as well as from themselves. An example here would be Fidelity or HSBC. Finally, the third option is a financial institution or bank that only offers their own funds for you to invest in. And the top example here is Vanguard. They don't offer investing in shares, only in funds, and they're all funds created by Vanguard. The key driver of which platform to use, there are four of them, four key drivers. One is the user friendliness of the platform. And this might be the app or the website, whichever you're gonna use, look at it, test it out. It's, if it seems user friendly, that's a good thing. Second is customer service. When you have an issue, is it easy to resolve via the phone or online? Third is convenience. In the past, I would not have recommended holding an ISA or SIP through your bank as these tended to have higher fees, poor customer service, and were simply not that user-friendly. Their apps were far behind the likes of Hargreaves Lansdowne, but many banks have really stepped up their game. So it's worth looking at your bank's investment platform and seeing if it could suit you. Of the four banks that I use for a current account, I have noticed that HSBC allows you to invest through the app now, which is something that was not available even three years ago, I think. So look at the options there. Um, they seem reasonably user-friendly, but you make the decision for yourself. And then finally, but actually most importantly, the fees. Most platforms charge an annual management charge or fee, and I avoid this by using iWeb because they have no platform fees. They just charge you five pounds to buy or sell investments. However, I never recommend iWeb to beginners because you can't automate your investing, which I think is essential if you want to just set and forget your investing or if you're starting out and wanna make things easy for yourself. So I'll give you an idea of the ma annual management charge. Of the platforms I would guide you to research, these are the annual platform fees you can expect to pay as a beginner. In many cases, this fee will fall as your portfolio grows to a bigger number. So Hargreaves Lansdowne charge 0.45%. And by the way, I'm not being paid by anyone in discussing this post. Uh, although I'll admit I have worked for HSBC in the past and uh, I think they're a great institution. That's my only sort of conflict of interest here. But 
I think I'm pretty neutral. So Hargreaves lands down 0.45%. Fidelity, 0.35%. So it's 0.1% cheaper. Vanguard, 0.15%. So a fair amount cheaper, but you can only invest in their own funds. HSBC, 0.25%. Halifax charge £36 a year. So they don't charge you a percentage fee, which is great when your portfolio grows to a large number. Automating investments is charged at £2 a trade at Halifax. So you can keep fees low uh, by automating your trades. But if you do trade manually, this is £9.50 a deal, which is quite pricey. In addition to platform fees, whatever you invest in will have an ongoing annual fee. Ongoing fees usually range from as little as 0.05% to over 1% and in some obscene cases can be as much as 3%. Watch out for those ongoing fees because they can really harm the growth of your portfolio. There may also be fees for leaving or joining a platform. Look at all chargeable fees before committing to an account. You can always change institutions if you change your mind, but it's better to do your research before you even start. Any institution regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority will be transparent about all the fees charged and I'd say don't invest through any unregulated institutions. As I researched this article, I discovered that junior ICEs at Fidelity are not charged an annual management charge and I immediately transferred all of my children's ISA investments to them from Hargreaves Lansdowne. That was £55,000 in total. Their investments of 20000 each, which I saved between the age of zero and five, have grown pretty well over time. So, despite the poor stock market returns of 2022, they remain up. If you're interested in how I invest for my kids, see my post on how I save and invest for children, the link will be in the description. I won't spend a lot of time on fees because that would make this post very long. But what I will do is link to several articles that discuss fees across a range of platforms. Just click on the resource link and you'll see four links that focus just on fees. Part three, how much to invest? If you have a lump sum to kickstart your investing, that's great. You can invest it all in one go. However, some people prefer to spread a large investment into smaller chunks spread over two, three, four, five months. There is no real benefit in this if you're investing for the long term. In fact, data suggests that lump sum investing beats drip feeding your investment into the stock market 75% of the time. However, if it makes a psychological difference to you, you can split a large lump sum over a few months. What's large? Well, that's for you to define because if I had a large sum to invest, I would invest however much I planned on investing all in one go. But generally, most people don't have a large sum and the decision is about how much to invest each month. Investing monthly over a long period of time is called dollar cost averaging into the market. This is because as your shares are cheaper in a bear market and more expensive in a bull market, over time you're paying the average price of the market. 
if I was working with a specific person, I would want to know how much they want to have at the age of 50 or 55, either as an annual income or in total, and I would back calculate the amount they need to invest monthly. And you can use a date further in the future if you want. But for me, I want a great amount of financial freedom at this point so that my decision to work is based not on the need for money. As I'm not doing this for you one-on-one, -on -one, uh, you can achieve this goal yourself. You can do it using an online calculator. And I like the investment calculator on Dave Ramsey's website. So it's linked to in the resource link. Uh, just ignore the fact that it has a dollar sign. Put in your GBP investment number. You don't need to make any conversion. The sign doesn't matter here. I personally usually assume a gross return of 7%. Uh, that's the return before inflation is taken into account. And with average inflation of 3%, this is a net return of 4%. Put into the calculator the gross return you want, i.e. 7%. If you think that's too ambitious, put a lower amount. If you think uh, the stock market will return better, put a higher amount. While I use 7%, to ensure I'm not undersaving, I save, I target a higher number at the age of 50 than I think I will achieve with the 7%. And in addition, when you go to the Ramsey link for the investment calculator, ignore links to other resources as they are quite US centric. The calculator is what you want to look at. And um, generally, if you want a rule of thumb, I would invest 15% of your income, 15% of your gross income split between pensions, ISAs, taxable brokerage. If you're saving a lot more, for example, if you're part of the fire movement, superb. But 15% is the minimum, I'd say, you should be investing. So if your annual income is 60K per annum, then you should be saving 9,000 a year as a minimum. Take your annual income, multiply it by 0 0.15, and this is the number you should target to invest every year, divided by 12 for the monthly figure, and then you can decide where to go between pension, ISA, and taxable brokerage. End of part three. Part four, what to invest in. Two definitions are essential first. Definition one is to understand equities or shares. Investing in the shares of companies is called investing in equities. Equities pay dividends if they have money left over after paying all costs, including interest on debt. Some companies, especially fast-growing companies choose not to pay dividends and instead reinvest the money. If you buy the shares in a company, you're known as a shareholder and you also make a return or a loss from any increase or fall in the price of the shares. So in addition to dividends, changes in the share price lead to profits or losses for you. So for example, if you buy shares for 10 and they grow to 12, that's a 20% return. If their price falls to 8, that's a 20% loss. However, even if you've made a loss, if you've been paid dividends, it might make up for the fact that you made that loss. That's the first definition. Equities is investing in companies and becoming an owner in that company. Debt investing or investing in bonds is investing in the debt of a company. So companies issue debt, usually bonds, 
and those bonds earn a fixed and known return. So when you put your money into a bond, you know exactly how much you're going to earn when. So when it comes to investing and deciding what to put your money in, there are a range of options you can choose from. And here I'll suggest just three of those for you to look into to keep this not complex. Option one is to have 100% of your money in stocks, the stocks of a diversified fund. So for instance, if you've got some property income, that's your kind of stable income. So being 100% invested in stocks is not as risky as it sounds. Or if you're particularly young, you can be 100% invested in equities, shares. If you're starting out in investing, you should be satisfied to earn the average stock market return by investing in a low-cost, diversified index fund. It requires a lot of time to identify specific companies that are undervalued or those with great growth potential. And you don't need to do this to do well with investing. In fact, the evidence suggests just putting money in one or two diversified passive funds that you don't need to check regularly gives better returns than stock picking yourself and trying to beat the market. I personally prefer stock indices that track the S&P 500. These are the 500 largest companies in the US and these funds usually cost 0.1% or less. Large US companies usually have global sales and source materials from a range of international companies. So I feel it's quite adequate diversification and by investing, investing in this S&P 500, it implicitly includes some exposure to Europe and to some emerging markets without having to worry about the corporate governance issues that might be present in any of those regions. The historical average yearly return of the S&P 500 is 9.645%, 9.6% over the last 20 years as at the end of Jan November 2022. This assumes dividends are reinvested. Adjusted for inflation, the 20-year average return, including the dividends, was just shy of 7%. I give a link to where I sourced this. If you prefer to invest in the UK stock market, you can choose funds that track the FTSE 100 in the UK. These are the 100 largest listed companies. By default, less diversified already because it's 100 companies, not 500. And in fact, for the nerds among you, the S&P 500 actually has 503 companies. In the 20 years leading to 31 December 2019, and I give this particular 20-year period because that's what I could find, the FTSE 100 had an average annual return of 0.4%. That sounds low, but if dividends were not reinvested, this is what you got. But if they were reinvested, this return rose to a not insubstantial return of 4% a year. So reinvesting dividends is key. So option one is a diversified index fund. Option two is target date funds. Target date funds are funds that invest based on the assumption that you will retire in a specific given year. These funds have a higher proportion of the riskier equity investments and a lower proportion of bonds which give the fixed and known return 
when you're young and as the retirement date approaches, more and more money is invested in bonds and less and less is invested in equities. Some in the investment community consider that target date funds get too conservative too quickly because no one retires and needs all their investment money straight away. So if you want to have some money in equities and a portion also in bonds, you could start with a target date fund, but you might want to set the retirement date much further in the future, i.e. much further than when you plan to retire. Perhaps set it 20 years further than you plan to retire, especially if you're partly saving to pass on an inheritance rather than just for your own retirement. Speak to your financial advisor about this and they'll give you what for a sense for what target date you should have on there so that you don't go too quickly into a, a bond-like portfolio. Finally, option three is ready-made funds. Many institutions offer ready-made funds and this is how I actually started investing with Hargreaves Lansdowne many years ago. This helps you get started with investing and if you choose to go with a ready-made fund, as I did, take this as a learning opportunity. Seek to understand what is in those funds, what the fee structure is, and if you don't like the underlying investments or you see that the relative fees are high, either don't buy them in the first place or sell them and move into other investments. I don't recommend investing in single stocks, as I've said, e.g. buying specific companies, as this exposes you to a lot more risk than tracking a whole market. So I won't cover single stock investing here. I did used to trade in single stocks in my early 20s, but I no longer do. So putting this into action, I thought I would give you a simple example because I know all this information might seem confusing and through this example, you can see how it works when it's in action. So about three years ago, unprompted, I told a 30 year old couple I know and like that if they wanted to save 300,000 or to have 300,000 when they were 55, in addition to their workplace pensions, they should put 100 pounds each into a sip every month. With a lump sum like that, that 300,000, that would give them the option to retire early and as dinkies, people with a double income and no kids, I knew they wouldn't feel that kind of investment even if it fell to zero. And with the government match, there would be 25% up from the outset due to the tax saving. Also, as I knew they were first-time investors and relatively risk-averse, I got them to put almost all their invested money in S&P 500 trackers with a small portion of about 10 to 15% in an actively invested fund. They use Hargreaves Lansdowne and I chose this for them because the customer service is great and you can easily get a person on the phone. But as their funds grow, I might get them to move to a cheaper provider. I'll review this when they're like at 50,000. Three years later, because this was late 2019 when I suggested this to them, they have a combined £20,000 in extra savings between them and their SIP. They invest a little more than what I suggested, so this num it's not much more. This number is a little higher than I would have expected. And as I wasn't happy with the performance of their actively managed fund, and I looked into it when I was researching this post, 
I got them to sell all of that and stick it all into the two low-cost diversified funds that I had suggested in their first place. They were getting a good return from those and I was like, yep, just stick to those. They're really happy uh, with this set and forget strategy and they're not much interested in overthinking it. And unlike most of their friends, they have savings. In about four years, they'll also be mortgage-free based on a repayment plan that I advise them to stick to. Financially, they're on a great track and are also enjoying life. So investing doesn't need to be complicated or big or scary. You can start small and increase your investment as you learn more, develop confidence and start to understand how different investments work. It's over to you now. I hope you enjoyed this little journey through investing. And as it is the end of 2022, my annual planner is available for sale on my website if you want to start planning the new year. I hope you enjoyed this. Au revoir. Thank you for listening. I have three things that you can do. Firstly, please give me a five-star review in Apple Podcast. It really helps for people to find this podcast. And if I have not earned your five-star rating, please send me a message and let me know how I can earn your five-star review. Secondly, if you've enjoyed this, share it with a friend that you think is going to benefit. And finally, for some of my writing on personal finance, go to katsonga.com forward slash my books.